Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to The Lob by These Football Times, the home of long-form storytelling online. Let us loop you through the ages of football. So sit back, learn, and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Lob Podcast from These Football Times. Uh, tonight we'll be discussing the Copa America Centenario, which is taking place here in the U.S. Uh, over the course of, uh, of about the next month, starting next week. Uh, we have a very distinguished panel of experts tonight. Uh, we have Mr. Tim Vickery, uh, who has been working for the BBC. He's been living in uh, Brazil since 94. Uh, he's been working for the BBC, like I said. Uh, he's doing work for ESPN. Uh, and he'll be here in the U.S. covering uh, the Copa. Uh, welcome to the show, Tim. How's things going tonight? Lovely to be here. You know, I've, I've, had, uh, I've had mixed feelings about this this tournament and I still have although as it gets closer I'm getting more and more enthusiastic and I'm getting more and more enthusiastic about going to the States for the first time because um, I've never been there before and I arrive in New York and uh, you know from our culture and so much comes from the States and so much of so much English music has been based as its starting point on black American music and just now I was listening to uh, uh, a song from my adolescence. We used to get down and do a rowing dance to the Gap Bands. Oops, up, oops, upside your head. And I'm just listening to it now and thinking, oh, that's where I'm going to be. I'm going to be in the States. I'm going to be in the United States of America. So I'm becoming increasingly enthusiastic about the whole project. Nice. That's great. Uh, also with us tonight uh, is an old friend, uh, Mr. Juan Orango, uh, who is the color analyst for the uh, Miami FC of the NASL. He'll also be doing the Spanish language uh, broadcast for the CONCACAF for the upcoming Copa Centenario. Uh, welcome to the show, Juan. What's going on? What's up, man? Doing good, doing good. I heard Tim's going to be going over to Bedford-Stuyvesant to be, you know, trying to get some of the roots there as far as, you know, most deaf in, in the rap scene over in over, over in you know, like Queens and in Brooklyn and stuff. So that sounds that sounds really cool, man. Go. It's going to be the hottest day of the year, and you can do something, you can do nothing, or you can do the right thing. That's my main link with Bed Stuy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there you go. That... <laughs> but there you go, man. I mean, I mean, that, that that's the place to be, you know. And, and yeah, I'll, I'll be I'll be traveling. Also, I'll be in Orlando. Uh, I'll be in Philadelphia and I'll be in in, in uh, Boston for you know a couple of matches, including the quarterfinal, which promises to be tremendous. If you get you know Uruguay, Argentina, Chile, or Mexico, you know a combination of those four in, in the quarterfinal. So that'll be one of the tremendous matches of the tournament for sure. The third member of our distinguished panel tonight is Mr. Roberto Rojas, uh, who is. Uh, is the uh, co-host of Low Limit Football. Uh, Mr. Rojas also writes for Vavel, uh, among other things. Welcome to the show, Roberto. What's going on? I'm doing well, James, and I am excited as Tim is, as excited as Juan is to be a part of this tournament. Obviously, the biggest tournament to happen in the United States since the 1994 World Cup. I'll be falling into the footsteps of my dad, you know, an immigrant coming from Paraguay, uh, Going to such a tournament like this, I'll be following in his footsteps, covering such fantastic matches here in what is known as the um, the United States of America. Speaking of that, um, I've picked out um, I've picked out four matches that I, that I just went through the group stage. I picked out four matches that I thought were intriguing, um, and just to start the conversation with in the group stage, I picked out. Uh, on June 4th, we've got Costa Rica 
versus Paraguay. Uh, on the fifth, we've got Mexico versus Uruguay. Uh, on the sixth, we've got Argentina versus Chile. And on the eleventh, we've got Colombia versus Costa Rica. So I just picked those out of the uh, out of the what I thought was most intriguing uh, matchups. Uh, Tim, w what would you say are the most intriguing matchups for you coming into this uh, into this Copa? Immensely looking forward to USA against Colombia, and what a great way to get the ball rolling. Um, also looking forward a lot to Brazil against Ecuador. Um, they meet each, each other very soon again, I think in, in September, um, with perhaps more at stake, because and this is something that, that maybe we'll get into over the course of the next few minutes. And I think World Cup qualification is, is clearly a priority over the Copa America for, for the South American sides. I wonder if the same is true for the, for the CONCACAF sides. Um, I, I know much, much less about them. It's not really my area. Uh, and uh, this, this is something which interests me, because I would have thought that for the CONCACAF sides, this tournament really is an opportunity. And I just wonder if they're going to be more motivated than the sides from South America. What do people think about that? I mean, from, from what I've been talking, and, and I was in Costa Rica with a good friend of yours, uh, Tim, with, with Paul Saras, uh, doing the, um, the CONCACAF Futsal Championships. And there is a bit of anticipation, at least from the Costa Rican side, to be able to... Be able to to see that going on, to really see Costa Rica try and repeat under Machillo Ramirez this time, to be able to, to see what they were able to do in the World Cup back in 2014 and do it pretty much against some of the same competition that they were able to face in that tournament, uh, especially in Uruguay. But, but that being said, uh, Mexico also have priorities as far as the Olympic tournament is concerned. The U.S., uh, I mean, they, they really wanted to have a big tournament, especially being the host nation. And what's most, most important is to see how teams like Jamaica continue growing. I mean, as far as, as, far as winning it, uh, there's some teams that might be looking at, at some bigger in, in, and probably more you know, priority-laden uh, situations, such as maybe you know, trying to get to the next stage of, of the CONCACAF qualifiers. Yes, that is a big factor. But to see uh, CONCACAF really coming in, uh, all guns blazing, I think that's going to be a very important thing for this tournament. And it'll add that little bit of spice that it needs. And what about you, uh, Roberto? What 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 matches are most intriguing to you in the in the group stage? Well, it's quite ironic that the United States are opening this tournament against Colombia uh, in the same state in which they produced one of their most famous victories in history, the two one victory at the uh, Rose Bowl in, 19, in the nineteen ninety four World Cup. Uh, like as uh, Tim has mentioned, I am really also interested to see Brazil against Ecuador. You know, Ecuador has been spectacular in World Cup qualification so far. Uh, surprising Argentina at the Monumental, defeating teams like Uruguay, and uh, also providing a spectacular performances so far. Of course, another one will be against Mexico, Uruguay, and Glendale. Uh, Mexico is looking to ride high as one of the best in CONCACAF, if not the best in CONCACAF, against a great side like Uruguay, especially if we know it, whether or not Luis Suarez will be playing uh, up front. And of course, in Group D, it has to be the rematch of the Copa America final in Chile last year, which... Tim, you definitely remember Argentina against Chile at Levi Stadium. You know how much revenge can Argentina finally get, and how much motivation can they get to finally win a international title for the first time in 23 years? Well, with Argentina and Chile both bringing strong sides, unlike some of the Conmebol teams, uh, it looks like Argentina and Chile both are taking the tournament fairly seriously. Uh, I question, uh, you know, whether or not Brazil is maybe taking um, maybe a, a, a B-plus side or a B kind of side to a certain extent, maybe looking at the Olympics as more of a, more of a thrust for them. Um, what do you think about that, Tim? Well, I think Brazil are a little bit contradictory here, a little bit schizophrenic. They've got themselves over this competition because, and you're right, they clearly established the Olympics as their priority. And that's easy to understand. And for, for Brazil, Copa America's a ten a penny. The Olympics, it, they're at home. It's the one title that open to them that they've never won. Um, so they would really, really love to put that right this year. So that's the priority. Uh, and uh, I understand that ticket sales to Brazil from the Copa Centenario have been very, very poor indeed. However, the coach's job is on the line. 
Um, Dunga really is fighting for, for his job, and a bad Copa America could well mean that he's not even in charge for the Olympics. I mean, it's as serious for him as that. So he's, there are a few play, the handful of players in the squad who are there for the Olympics. But the rest, it's more or less as strong as he's got. Uh, it's more or less the best that he can take. Obviously, that they had to give up Neymar because the, and they wanted Neymar for both, but uh, Barcelona wouldn't play ball, quite rightly, decided that they would only release him for one, and Brazil chose, chose the, the Olympics. Bad news for Brazil in the last few minutes. Douglas Costa has just pulled out. Now, this is, this is uh, a problem for this tournament. Uh, the number of players... I, I think that, in general, the, strong, the, the, the squad lineup was stronger than I'd feared and expected. Uh, in some ways, surprisingly so. And I, I have no idea what Uruguay are thinking of taking their, their, their first choice lineup. No idea at all. I think it's madness, especially as the coach has just hit out um, quite violently at the whole tournament. And you can understand why from Uruguay's point of view, because Uruguay's itinerary is absolutely absurd. It's been drawn up by a, as if it's been drawn up by an adolescent with a felt-tip pen. They just crisscross the country all over the place. So quite why Uruguay are risking their strongest squad, risking tiring out their strongest squad, I, I don't understand. Chile as well. I mean, I, I know there's a new coach, Pizzi, trying to, trying to get his feet under the table, but I think they, they may pay a price for burning out some of their best players as well. In what is, after all, the oldest squad in the field. But we are beginning to see players drop out. And this is a problem for the tournament, I think. It reminds me in that sense a little bit of the 2002 World Cup. Um, the, the, the similarity is they both started right at the start of June, whereas usual international tournaments start when, when the Euros are starting. You've got that extra week or 10 days to recover from the arduous European season. Um, we haven't done that with a copper didn't happen with the 2002 World Cup in order to avoid the rainy season in Japan and South Korea. And that's one of the reasons that that World Cup was so strange. A really bizarre result in that World Cup. Teams doing well in that, in that competition who've never done well subs, um, subsequently. Um, so that, that, that is, I think, day by day, that's becoming more of a problem for the Copa America. You know, we've just lost Douglas Costa. You know, we've lost Ortigosa of Paraguay. And day after day after day, we're losing more. And Ecuador might have lost Los uh, Gruezo after the friendly against the States um, the other night. So uh, this is a problem, I think. The, the, the timing of the tournament means that uh, a, a lot of players, they haven't had sufficient time to get over to the, the, the European season. And those who are there, they could not well, well not be firing on, on all, all cylinders. And also to piggyback on what Tim was saying, too, I mean, guys like Messi, personally, too, Guys like Messi, he's going to be in the game against uh, against Honduras in San Juan tomorrow as Argentina get ready. What's he going to do now? Go back to Spain because he has to go to court because of the um, certain questions <laughs> that he's having over there as far as um, you know having problems with the Spanish government. And then he's going to take a private jet from Spain and go to Santa Clara to meet up with, with the Argentine national team right before they end up playing uh, Chile. So, I mean, <laughs> you, you do have a, a hectic schedule regardless of how you see it. I mean, and, and also, Tim mentioned that Ricardo Oliveira also out of the lineup as well. Jonas Gonçalves for, for Brazil. So, I mean, you do see a, a lot of soldiers starting to go down, and it's, it's pretty much what we're starting to see every summer with these big international tournaments now. So, I'll put it to you, Roberto. Uh, we've, we've got these big sides with, with these issues, but now when you look at a, a squad like Peru and Paraguay, and some of these other sides, Peru, for example, is has, I believe it's 11 of 23 players have never played international tournaments before, never never suited up for the international squad before. Um, Paraguay uh, has a number of players that have only played, you know, within their domestic league. Um, how are they going to fare in this international competition? Squads like well, that. Well, in the course of Paraguay, I'd like to mention and go back to what Tim said. Yes, you're right. Nestor Tigosa, obviously one of the best penalty kick takers in all of South America, maybe all over the world, given his record, is out. A creative midfielder, someone who was a powerful defensive midfielder who could provide passes to the front line and everything like that. It's a big loss for Paraguay and for Ramon Diaz, you know. What changes will he make in the uh, starting lineup for either a 4-4-2 in a diamond or a regular flat 4-4-2? But then going back into the defense, 
Well, you've also missed out uh, Pablo Aguilar, who is also out of the tournament, meaning that players such as Gustavo Gomez, who's having a fantastic tournament at La Nuz, uh, who's going to be playing the uh, playoff against San Lorenzo to decide the winner of the Argentine League. Uh, he's going to have to trust you, as well as other players, maybe in the left-back position, such as Blas Ribeiros, who is an 18-year-old, recently signed from Basel, currently playing at Olympia. He might get some experience. And you also have a lot of youngsters like Robert Pires da Mota, uh, players like Dario Lescano, who's been doing fantastically for the national team ever since his debut. Juan Iturbe, the new um, Argentine Paraguayan player who's finally decided to play for the Paraguayan national team. Uh, Darius Gonzalez, who's had a fantastic Copa America last year. And Antonio Sanabria as well, who comes in to replace the old guard and wear the, na- the same shirt as Roque Santa Cruz did for this tournament. So a lot of youth in that level for the uh, Labri Roja. As for Peru, well, in a group with Brazil, Ecuador, and Haiti, Ricardo Gareca said is definitely looking to um, pick more of a young squad. You know, uh, you got players, you have the experienced players such as Pedro Gallese, Yotun, uh, Paulo Guerrero, obviously their main player, but also a lot of young players uh, in this squad as well, mostly using on the domestic size. And they're looking at this tournament as, as a big experience, maybe to use for the next World Cup in 2022, given that the qualification that they've been having so far, Peru has been abysmal, and it's not been fantastically well for Peru. So they're going to take this tournament as a bit of experience, and hopefully they can surprise like they did in the last two Copa Americas, where they reached third place in Argentina and Chile. Yeah, Peru is sitting at something like 50-1 to 1 to get out of the group even. So, I mean, it may be a bridge too far for them to even get out of the group, looking at the, the sides that are above them. Um, I'll go back to Tim. Tim, I, I forgot to mention it at the top of the show, but uh, happy birthday. Uh, I believe it was yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I've had too many of them already. There's, when, you, when, when you reach my age, there's no congratulations. The only thing you conclude is that getting older is better than the alternative. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm, I'm still older than you, so uh, I know just and, what And always will be. And always will be. <laughs> but one thing that intrigues me about uh, about this Brazil side and Dunga, and it just confounds me, is the saga of David Luiz, and what and just why does he not use Tiago in 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 his formation? Can you bring some light to why Dunga seems? impossible to understand in building his defense he's he's difficult to understand anyway and he he's someone who <laughs> thrives on conflict um and that that's how he turned himself into a, into not a great player but a pretty good player uh and he was he was a fairly limited player in in the 1990 world cup as a holding midfielder by 1994 he'd improved on uh, improved greatly in terms of his passing and and, and that was as a result of of facing all of the criticism that he faced after Brazil's failure in 1990. He was the scapegoat for a lot of it. Uh, and he used that conflict and that anger to make himself into into a far better player. There must always with him, there must be conflict, which is all right if you're a player. It's probably all right if you're a team captain. But once you become the team coach, I think it, it, it becomes much, much harder to, to administer. And part, I think, of Brazil's failure in his first spell um, in the in the in the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, was the fact that emotionally he was absolutely out of his depth. Uh, with Thiago Silva, now remember, Dunga defines himself as Brazil's World Cup winning captain in 1994. He watched from from the stands when Brazil lost the World Cup on home ground in 2014, uh, which, for all of the technical deficiencies of the team, was primarily an emotional collapse you know you remember that the team were crying before the game crying during the game crying after the game it was a it was a veil of tears now Thiago Silva although he was suspended for the fateful 7-1 against Germany he was the captain of the team um, he doesn't have although he is I think one of the world's great centre-backs I don't really think he has the characteristics of, of, of a captain uh, and we saw that very clearly when the the second round game against Chile went to a penalty shootout now, Thiago Silva, he sat away from the rest of his players, sobbing his heart out, just sitting on a ball and refused to take a penalty kick. And for Dunga, who, as I said, defines himself as the captain, that was unforgivable. 
So uh, he, he was against Thiago Silva from, from that moment. So the first thing that he did when he came in as coach for his second spell was he stripped Thiago Silva of the captaincy uh, and uh, he left him on the bench. Now, he got a chance during the last Copa America uh, and the, it gave away a silly penalty against Paraguay um, that, uh, in, in the end, ended up costing Brazil qualification. That match went to a penalty shootout in the quarterfinal and Brazil were eliminated. And from that moment, he didn't want to know any more. Um, with David Luiz, he persevered uh, and persevered and persevered. But it seems like a, a disastrous display against Uruguay and Luis Suarez at the end of March has, has put paid to, uh, to um, uh, David Luiz. Another one that he's, uh, he's fallen out with uh, uh, over the years a few times is Marcelo, the Real Madrid left-back. Now, right at the start of the first Dunga reign, when uh, when Marcelo was a was a teenage fullback, Dunga gave him his international debut, and he scored on debut, and he looked like a future star. But after that, and Dunga, he just goes on and on and on about commitment, 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 and he didn't think Marcelo showed enough commitment. Um, he might have been justified on one or two occasions. There was a time there was a friendly that Brazil played against Scotland, uh, and uh, Marcelo managed to uh, to persuade. Brazil's coaching staff that he was injured and couldn't play, uh, and he, he sent an email back to the uh, to Real Madrid's club saying, "I've managed to fool them, uh, and they've let me off." But oh, the dangers of modern technology! That email by mistake, he also sent it to Brazil's coaching staff, uh, and once Dunga had a look at that, you know that was a big, big black mark against Marcelo, and explains why he didn't go to the 2010 World Cup, uh, and part of the explanation why he's not in the Brazil squad either so uh, Dunga must have these little little conflict things to thrive on uh, with, with, if, if he was kind of left in a room he, he'd end up arguing arguing with himself just to st- stop himself getting bored but it really is it's, it's approaching make or break time and had his team lost to Paraguay at the end of March in that World Cup qualifier he might already have gone they scored a last gasp equaliser uh, and uh, he really is um, backs to the wall he may not survive if Brazil have another disappointing campaign. So, over to you, uh, Juan, as our CONCACAF guy on here. When I look at the, at the teams that are coming to this tournament from CONCACAF, it seems to me there's a big gap in quality between the Ball teams and the CONCACAF teams that are participating in this in this tournament. Uh, am I wrong in saying that that there is that gap? And do you expect any surprises from the CONCACAF sides? Uh, I guess particularly maybe Mexico or Costa Rica or the U.S. When you start to look at CONCACAF, it's really a mixed bag that you're getting. I mean, yeah, you do have some teams uh, that have been able to make relative statements. Uh, you know, Mexico perennially has done well in Copa America today. It's embarrassing. I mean, it really is. I mean, they look lost at times. At least, uh, you know, you see that Michael Bradley has the wherewithal to at least be able to, to find his place in the world when he's playing as a number six. You do see the U.S. losing some connection when you don't have, you know, the U.S. is lacking that different player, that player that, that has, I mean, and you probably might be finding it at least in the early stage with Christian Pusilic. You're seeing have them have that little bit of malandrage, that little bit of, of maliciousness, street smarts. The U.S. are still a very robotic football culture. Uh, when you start looking at Costa Rica, yeah, you might see him from a defensive standpoint, maybe not be as good as when Jorge Luis Pinto was the coach. But, so, I mean, it, it depends on which South American team you're looking at, because if you start comparing Mexico and Panama and even Costa Rica, uh, comparing them to Bolivia, I mean, then, then you start, you know, it's a different situation. If you start comparing them to Argentina or Chile, then you're going to have a completely different answer coming from me. So, it, again, it depends on who you're talking to or what teams you're trying to compare as far as that's concerned. Because Commonwealth in the past few years have started to see the haves and have-nots really open up that chasm. I mean, the big question, too, is, you know, if you start talking about uh, CONCACAF teams, teams like Venezuela, how are they going to be doing under Rafael Dudamel and the big generational change that is going on with the Vino Tinto right now? Uh, uh, you know, are, are you going to start seeing the younger players, you know, the Salomon Rondons, the Añors? Uh, you, you start seeing, you know, the, the 
better quality generation starting to come in for Venezuela to start to step up after a dismal World Cup campaign. On the other end, are you going to start looking at Panama? Are they going to be able to make a, a big statement this time around? I mean, because that's a team that everybody's been talking for over a decade. Hey, this team is on. This team is about to break through. This team's about to break through, and you're starting to see the generations go from one hand to the other. You know, you see the the generational baton switch, if you will, going from one end to the other. How, are they going to start showing any tangible results? with Bolillo Gomez as the coach? I mean, those are some of the question marks that are there. So, I mean, as far as, is there a gap between CONMEBOL and CONCACAF? Yes, there is. Now, but when you start looking at individual teams, you can start, you know, kind of, you know, shifting positions, especially that bottom portion, as far as who the teams are, you could probably start seeing some CONCACAF teams mixing in with the Venezuelas, with the Perus, and even with, even with the Bolivians. Okay. Um... Roberto, um, why don't you kind of add some flavor to that, especially when it comes to uh, Paraguay, uh, maybe Bolivia. Uh, how would you compare, especially those two sides, maybe Peru, to what you see on CONCACAF? Well, there is a lot of a uh, gap, as uh, Juan has mentioned. There is quite a gap between uh, both uh uh, confederations. Uh, Paraguay obviously have been consistent, basically. You can p maybe compare them to a CONCACAF side, perhaps maybe a Honduras or a Costa Rica. They've been able to qualify to four consecutive World Cups in CONMEBOL, which is the toughest World Cup qualifier in the world when you have to deal with such amazing conditions, wild fans, and everything that has to be under that with Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, Chile, Uruguay, and so on and so forth. You can start comparing the youth on that team that Ramon Diaz has been doing and see a rejuvenation happening uh, after the failure to qualify for their own uh, neighbor's tournament in 2014. So you can definitely see something among those lines for Paraguay, especially with, the, with a coach and a winner like Ramon Diaz. As for Bolivia, they've always been perennial, uh, perennial I guess you could say, um, abysmal so far ever since failing to qualify for the uh, World Cup after 1994. And it's a big loss to see that best player, Alejandro Tumachero, the strongest, is not on that team. He has been spectacular in the Copa Libertadores, And I thought maybe if they were able to surprise uh, something, especially what they did in the Copa America last year when they got out of the group with Chile, Mexico, and Ecuador, uh, anything is possible for the Bolivia side. But it's all going to be um, confusing, especially with the chaos that has been happening in Bolivia, at the Bolivia FA, with the different types of coaches that have been happening uh, in the past few years. And, and uh, obviously, when you mention uh, Peru, as I mentioned, it's a young talent, a uh, young team with Carlos uh, Gareca uh, looking to rejuvenate the new, um, the uh, something that hasn't been seen from Peru since qualifying for the 82 World Cup. So this tournament might prove something big and maybe pull a surprise, as most tournaments are, like the Copa America. You're going to see a surprise there and there. Maybe the Commonwealth teams like Bolivia, Peru, Paraguay are going to slow up something. Or the CONCACAF sides like Jamaica, Haiti, Panama, and Costa Rica, especially in the hard group for Costa Rica when you're having to deal with the host, Colombia, and Paraguay. So it's going to be very interesting to see what both sides are going to do. But in terms of the gap, it is immensely huge from, uh, from Commonwealth. In fact, I can even see a statement that uh, Tim always notes all the time. The standard and depth and quality of South American national teams has never been higher. But when comparing them to the club level, it's never been lower and worse than it has been. Okay. Um, I'd like to dig in a little bit on, on one of the matchups that uh, intrigues me the most, which is uh, Chile against Argentina. And one of the, one of the debates that I, that I see in my mind is... When Argentina comes up against Chile, uh, who do you think they're going to play at striker? Do you think against Chile, do you think they're going to play Aguero or Higuain against that uh, a Chilean side? I'll put that to you, Tim. Well, I think we, we can confirm that it's, it's probably going to be one or the other. I remember in, when they, they qualified for Brazil 2014 playing both of them um, with Di Maria as part of the midfield tri trio. Um, 
something that they couldn't do during the World Cup, which the, the Stars were, didn't have enough uh, gas in the tank. And they ended up playing a much more defensive style of football in a tournament. And this is one of the things that continually blights tournaments, which is ended season tiredness. But since the World Cup, Martino's uh, interpretation of 4-3-3 has had either Aguero or Higuain with uh, Di Maria in the front three rather than the midfield three. Um, I don't know. Uh, I suspect, and well, you know, they got the warm-up friendly against Honduras. Um, I suspect that Higuain might get the nod. I don't know. But what intrigues me much more about Argentina is what they do defence. Because I think that is that is the key question. It's a key problem. hopping over the, the Argentine national team for, for some time now. Uh, and ever since the 2010 World Cup, you know, all of the coaches, we've had three different coaches, and they've all tried to try and kind of replicate the Barcelona 4-3-3 the structure in, in which Messi has, has uh, after, after a long wait, has gone some way to recapture his, his Barcelona form for Argentina. But there is a key difference, and that is that Barcelona defend high up the field, press like mad, and uh, Messi is receiving the ball 30 or 40 metres from the opposing goal. Argentina at centre-back are slow. Uh, and they're not particularly good. And the embarrassment of riches that they have in attack, they don't have a tool in defence. So their defensive line operates much, much deeper. Uh, and the consequence of this on Messi, I think, is interesting because it means that Messi has to drop so much further away from the opposition goal in order to pick up the ball. Uh, and it's, it's uh, th this fact that Messi has to cover much more ground is, I think, one of the, uh, the, the explanations for his uh, end-of-season burnout, if you like. Um, now, Argentina have to resolve this problem. They've made some, I think, or the, the, well, the cupboard is a little bit bare. Um, they don't have a lot. I mean, the, the, Victor Cuesta, they've called up. He wasn't even in the original list of 40, but they called him up at centre-back. That's a 27-year-old a centre-back. You would have thought that if he were the solution, um, we might have been aware of his quality before now. There's a lot of faith being put in, in Ramiro Funes Mori, who uh, may well play both the Copa America and the Olympics is quicker, is younger than the the uh, the, the, the old guard of Argentina centre backs. Is he really trustworthy? Do you really think that you, you can can you rely on him? Um, for my mind, he has a few too many mistakes in him. But that I think is is the most interesting thing to look at from an Argentina point of view. Um, Chile also, and how will they defend? Uh, uh, coach uh, Juan Antonio Pizzi is obviously a much more conventional figure than, than, than Sampaoli as a coach, and who isn't? And he's, he's usually a 4-2-3-1 man, and typically with a target man centre-forward. Now, how does he square that? How will, how will Chile defend? Will Chile continue to try and defend high up the field? Now, even against Argent Argentina, you know, Sampaoli in the, in the Copa America final, he tweaked the characteristics a little bit. He was more pragmatic. Uh, I think the key to that triumph was uh, the use of, of Arangis as a, as a midfielder with great lung power, not bursting forward so much, but giving his, as his priority, um, trying to isolate Messi from his teammates. Arangis has missed the vast majority of the season, um, has just come back and will be desperate to have a good tournament. So that, I think, is, is a matchup that, that I'm interested to see from the Argentina-Chile perspective. Where, where will both teams play their defensive lines and uh, how will Arangues play against Messi? You know what? It was interesting you said that about because just on, uh, on Tuesday, you saw Tata Martino begin to implement both uh, Iguain and Aguero in practice. He was starting to use both of them, and so that kind of threw the Argentine media off a little bit. But as far as Saturday's match, Iguain is going to start up top. It's going to be Messi, Iguain, and Di Maria in in that in that four three three that Tim was mentioning. So I mean, that that's going to be interesting too, because I mean, and I got the chance to be able to call that that Copa America final last year, and and it's also what what Tim mentioned how much Messi has to drop back, but also the lack of movement that Argentina has compared to Barcelona that really hinders Messi sometimes. And it's like, okay, fine, let's see what Leo can do to get us out of this one. 
and, and I, I think there's a, even more, uh, I mean, and I guess I'm going to borrow a cliche, that messy dependency as far as just trying to, to move that ball around a little bit more and, and find Aguero instead of Aguero trying to make himself available to find the space or Higuain or whomever. But also the big question is, you have a player like Javier Pastore, that, that's, you know, he's, he's injured, he's not in good form, same thing with Ezequiel Lavezzi, who Martino said he wants to have on the line, he wants to have in, in the United States for, the, for this tournament. And Lavezzi, they're saying, well, you know what, he's on the, he's on the national team because, well, you know, he, he cracks a lot of jokes, he makes Messi laugh, and he really, man, he serves up some really good mates. So, I mean, right there you start seeing that that's, that's a major problem when you start having these types of players in there that, uh, oh, you know, is it Messi's buddy? Or, you know, there's other controversies as well uh, going on, and, and some fair and some mostly unjust going towards Lionel Messi. One starts to worry about whether or not the uh, the midfield can probably work on this. You know, do you do you play Mascherano and Biglia, or who do, you, who do you play up in the four three three? You play Banega, or do you play Pastore, who has also been rumored that he could have uh, missed it, but in the end, he will be coming to this tournament. Uh, going back to the fence, as Tim mentioned, you're looking at Funes Mori, who has been quite questionable. Uh, at least I've questioned him a bit when he moves to Everton from River Plate. You know, he's a he is the quick he is quick, uh, quicker than most uh, center backs that Argentina has had, especially a player like uh, Martin de Michelis, for example. Uh, but how reliable is he? You know, what about the fullbacks of Argentina? You know, can Gabriel Mercado continue his fine form at international level and uh, provide the ball correctly up into the the uh, the front line of Argentina? You know. How well can Marcos Rojo do on the left? And going back to your question, uh, James, for me, I, I can't see anyone besides um, Aguero, honestly. You know, his form has been great. And obviously, there has been a lot of pressure from Higuain on this Argentine national team. It's been like that ever since the 2014 World Cup when he missed various chances and got the offside goal against Germany, and as well as missing the uh, the penalty in, against Chile in the penalty shooter in the Copa America final. So... How much trust does um, Tata Martino have on him? Well, we're going to definitely see that happen against Honduras and see which of the two, if both two, if both of them play. As well as um, going back to players who should have been on this, but I think Paulo Dybala would have made a, um, a reasonable pick. But honestly, you're looking at players who have already been... That's four strikers. Uh, you got Messi who shifted from striker to right wing. You, know, you have Di Maria and you'll have uh, Lionel Messi playing the wings. Is that enough? Probably, probably not. And uh, going back to Chile, yes, Tim is right. The game that the America was because of the intelligence of Charles Alanguiris for uh, against uh, Lionel Messi, and it's going to be very interesting to see him back on the Chilean side after missing uh, the majority of the 2015-2016 season through injury at Bayer Leverkusen. It's always going to be interesting who's going to replace uh, Jorge Valdivia, who's who is surprisingly not being called up to the national team. You know, do we see Eduardo Vargas playing uh, attacking midfielder and seeing Alexis play uh, as a, as a sole striker? Who knows? It, it's uh, it's a very intriguing matchup, but I would not be surprised that this is going to be a goal fest. And uh, we might see it's 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 um it's for me it's a coin toss honestly but you have to give more confidence to um, Argentina going forward but then again it's anyone's game. One 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 team we haven't. Yeah, well, I... Go ahead, Juan. No, no, and, and uh, just piggybacking on what both of you said, yeah, Charles Arangis, Chavez Arangis is going to be key for for Chile, but but it was interesting to be listening to to Juan Antonio Pizzi's press conference today, and, and they were asking him, you know, the, what's the most important thing? Discipline. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, take of that what you will, especially with the Copa America last year and some of the subplots that went on with, with you know, with Vidal and, and everything else that was going on there. But but he said, look, you know, guys, I'm not as distant to what was being done before. My, my way of seeing football is not that much different. Than that, so 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 he's try he's also having a delicate balance between not totally tinkering with with something that that's working, and at the same time, you know, not not trying to to try and change something and adapt it because there's a certain level of uh, of work that needs to be done in order to continue evolving with this program. So so there is there is a fine line that he does have have to have to walk in order to first of all 
continue to have the, the success to return to form and more importantly to keep the players happy because once you start getting the Vidal's, the Alexis Sanchez, the Arangis, the Claudio Bravo start getting upset, then you start seeing that there will be a little bit of a mutiny potentially. One team we haven't spent any time on uh, is the U.S. side. Um, we can skip over that if you want. Well, <laughs> uh, but there's there's one aspect of this tournament that I find both con you know controversial and intriguing, and that is the fact that a lot of the the games are going to be played on turf or some variation of turf, um, which really only the U.S. players have a lot of experience with and what you know will that be a factor i don't know tim yeah i only found this out uh, on friday or uh, on tuesday actually um I, did, I was i was in ignorance of this and then it was it was pointed out to me um that a lot of the stadiums are are, are synthetic turf um i think there's one that's mixed and and maybe five of them are, are are synthetic now i know nothing about this at all uh i suppose the players will be happy that the matches are taking place at night and not in the afternoon um but this really is one for for you who are usa based and, and are watching the games and i would i would love uh, i would love all of your opinions on this on how much of an influence you think this will have one It's going to have a pretty big impact, to be quite honest with you. I mean, um, there are, as, as you guys mentioned, most of the U.S. players are the ones that are uh, more accustomed to playing on this surface. It's going to be faster for some, but also there's also the risk of injury. So many are going to be a little bit more apprehensive. There are a couple of players on the Mexican side that are accustomed to, the ones that play at least in the Mexican league, that have gone over to Tijuana and have played against Cholos and have found that that particular scenario is one that really has been favoring them. But overall, yeah, it's going to be a big, big adaptation. But also, you start looking, there, there are synthetic pitches that have, been, that have been constructed in South America. In Argentina, there's a couple in Rosario. There's a couple in, in Buenos Aires. Peru has a couple. Um, one of the pitches that was used for the, for the under-17 uh, World Cup back in 2005 yeah, was most, one of those of venues. And most of them have gone because the players just absolutely detested them. You're absolutely really, right. The players' union went mad about them because absolutely. the quality of the game and, and, and the number of injuries as well. Well, I mean, if you start looking at what Sabrisa did, I mean, for, for about a decade, while Jorge Vergara was the owner, he implemented the artificial turf there. And, and of course, it was a nightmare for anyone that played at Sabrisa. Even the United States, when they had to play their national team games there, that was an absolute nightmare. Now they ripped that up. And they played on, and it's funny that the first season that they have the natural uh, natural grass is the first year in a couple of years that Saprissa doesn't win the league title and ends up having a great deal of dissent and a great deal of problems. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of ironic that it, it happens at a club like Saprissa. Uh, same thing with Alajuelense. So, Costa Rica is another team that's very accustomed to playing on artificial turf. I mean, most of those players that have played for, you know, for... For Saprissa, for Alajuelense, even for Herediano as well, are accustomed to those types of situations. But for South American players and South American players that are based over in Europe, that's going to be a, a tough adaptation. And what's been even more ironic is that there's certain teams, uh, Colombia right now, who happen to be in Miami training. I've been at their practice uh, the past couple of days. They're training on grass. So, I mean, they, they won't have that, that situation as much. But, yeah, it is going to be an issue for, sub, for several teams. If I, if I can just butt, butt in here quite rudely, sure, sure, this, is, uh, this is news which is hot off the press. This, um, I, I said earlier on, Douglas Costa out of the Brazil squad uh, with an injury, and Brazil have, have uh, just called up one South American player who is who does have a certain amount of experience with the synthetic turf. Kaká back in the Brazil squad for the Copper. Yeah, oh, I did, actually I just saw that. Oh, I, I did uh, too. I did too. Yeah, I just saw it. You're, you're right. I mean, so so Kaká, especially in one of the matches, will be in Orlando. So you know for sure that that's going to be pretty much kind of a home game for Brazil, especially with with the. I mean, if you go to Orlando, guys, you see Kaká is their big star. I mean, Kaká, to a lesser extent, is kind of like what Shaquille O'Neal was back in in the '90s in Orlando. I mean, you you drive up I four. And you see posters of Kaká. You see, you know, commercials with Kaká. So I mean, to have him and be able to play in Orlando, 
is going to be quite a treat. So that's that's going to be an interesting. That's going to be an interesting Just news story. Looking at my Twitter feed at the moment with uh, with Brazilian journalists, <laughs> they're not very happy about this. Uh, and one, I'm just this is quite funny. I think he's full no, of no, 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 dude. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, because because actually, you know who told me? I mean, it was it was um, it was uh, Alison, the guy that covers Cruzeiro. All right, uh, yeah, and, then, and also just put up here, Dunga has has dropped a, a football and he's up an, an ambassador. <laughs> uh, perhaps that's, that's a little bit disrespectful to to Kaká, but that's how many in Brazil see him these days. Well, you know what? You know who else is getting that too right now is Nicolas Lodeiro of Uruguay. Um, I mean, it, it's imminent that he's he look he's going to go to the Seattle Sit Founders. And you talk to people in Argentina, man, and they're saying, you know what? I mean, I mean, why is he going to retire at twenty seven? I mean that that's that those are the exact words a lot of journalists. I mean he he's going to retire in MLS. I mean at twenty seven, I mean I guess he doesn't want to play in the World Cup in Russia. So I mean it, it, it's it's a it's a it's a topic that, that really you know, I mean and even with the Jovinko story that came out too, I mean just, just kind of giving it like a parallel, you know, the people that that, that, that really were offended over the comments that Antonio Conte made of him of Jovinko not getting called up to the Italian national team. I mean, it just shows you that at least football here in the United States still has to overcome that image of being a retirement league. Because for all the Jovinkos and all the Lodedos, you're still getting the Lampards, the Gerards, the Pirlos, and the David Vigas who, who are looking for one final paycheck. So true. Um, so when we look back over, you know, some some teams that actually have, a, uh, I think, a real chance to win this this tournament you know clearly we talked about Argentina uh, we've talked about Brazil now uh, Colombia um, does anybody think that Mexico has a real shot to win this tournament I do hell yeah yeah I do they're the team that at least has to travel that's right I mean that, I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's up for them isn't it really yeah of course <laughs> I mean, it was funny. I was, I was watching Caracol the other day, the uh, Colombian uh, network, and they're saying it's set up for the U.S. and Mexico to win it. You know, we're, 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 we're kind of giving them, you know, we're making it easier on them to be able to win this tournament or at least challenge for the title. So, I mean, uh, if, you, if you're Uruguay, you're in the same group as Mexico and you look at your respective itineraries. It's a joke. Isn't it? Of course. I mean, that's the, yeah. Uruguay just, just, just cross back and forth, back and forth. Mexico don't yeah. have to do that. No, no, Mexico stayed pretty much within, you know, the, the you know, they, they stayed within the southeast and just, or the southwest, excuse me, and then they head to Texas. That's about it. And maybe, depending if they're in first or second place, they'll head up to Boston. Maybe. But that's when you start to see them travel. Argentina has to do the same thing, too. They have to go Santa Clara, Chicago, Seattle. And, and that's really been a major problem for Argentina as far as the logistical standpoint to be able to set up their camp. They, they were looking originally to do how, how they were how they were in Beaga when they were in Belo Horizonte to be able to to stay over at Alechico Mineiro's uh, complex and be able to, to to at least be able to, to filter themselves out in different you know to different stadiums here in the United States that's not going to happen I mean that that's not it's not planned out that way or it's, or it's not logistically possible because of the amount of, of traveling they have to do but you know I mean the U.S. does have to do their traveling as well I mean they have to play in Santa Clara they have to play in Philadelphia so, I mean, they, they do have uh, certain, certain issues that they have to overcome as far as travel is concerned, just like they did in Brazil. But they do have that setup where they are the home side. They can go and train pretty much anywhere they want. I, I think the same could be said for Paraguay as well. You know, they open up in Orlando, then they travel west to Pasadena, and then they end against the United States in Philadelphia. So you're basically going one way of the one side of the country to another. And, yeah, as Juan mentioned, Mexico do have the shortest uh, um, uh, travel into itinerary, and that might prove well for the um, for Mexico. And uh, going back to uh, the synthetic fields that uh, uh, Jim was talking about, Paraguay mm-hmm. have been training in Orlando at the uh, at the at the uh, ESPN World uh, Wide World of Sports uh, yeah. a few days before it, and so they're really prepared to um, play on the artificial turf at Camp exactly. and then play at Pasadena you know, in undergrads, and then go back to Lincoln Financial Field, which is uh, a mix. Of the uh, as Tim mentioned, so that's going to be uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how these teams, especially the South Americans who are playing in Europe, who have absolutely no experience of playing in these types of 
of pitches is going to field. And by the way, as well, it is it is absolutely important that this is going to be played in the evening, late afternoon, dusk time, not in the daytime that happened at USA 94 under 100 degree, 110 degree weather. So that might prove well. And uh, the heat might not be a factor for some of these players. Yeah, adding to that as well, Foxborough is another one. Gillette Stadium is another field that's artificial turf. That's right. But what they tend to do is to put grass over that. Now, that's also a risk, too, if you start looking at it, because then, you know, what, what if the different, you know, bits of grass start moving around? Do they start shifting, which has been a tendency in certain friendlies, because they'll in install that grass hours before kickoff. So we'll see how that plays out as the days go by, and also the maintenance of it, because obviously, uh, you know, seeing how if MLS is won't be playing there for a few days, and also you have uh, three matches being played over in Foxborough, it'll be interesting to see how that's maintained, or if they're going to start bringing the, bring them in, bring them out. I don't, I don't know what they're going to do, but that's going to be a major topic to, of, of discussion because one thing for sure, Robert Kraft is not taking those gridiron lines off. That's one thing he is not going to do. No, no, he won't. Um, as far as the, you know, just to finish up on the United States, uh, does anybody think that there's a chance that they're going to get out of the group? Surely it will be a disaster if they don't get out of the group. And obviously I, I know less about them than, um, than, mm. than, than you do. But I did watch the Ecuador game yesterday. And uh, I think if you were the States, you'd have come out of that thinking, quite, thinking pretty good about yourself. And the first half was poor, very, very poor. But what a great performance from, from Johnny Brooks at centre-back that, that meant that even when Ecuador were dominant, they didn't really have many clear-cut chances. And then you get a, you, you get a, a sense of that there's some depth in the squad um, with what happened in the second half, especially when Mickey Bradley was, uh, was placed in the, in, in the centre of midfield to organise um, the game from deeper. And this, this, uh, this very interesting 17-year-old from Dortmund, who uh, I think, as Juan said earlier on, just gives them that something extra. Um, you know, and it, it, for, for me, it's inconceivable that the USA don't get out of the group. I think it would be an absolute disaster. Wouldn't that be the end of Klinsman if they don't get out of the group? Pretty uh, much. Well, maybe not. I mean, I, but, but you, know, I mean, yes and no. Here's the thing, and, I, and I've been saying it for the past couple of years. Jurgen Klinsman's a very smart businessman. I mean, he <laughs> yes. he, he is he has that contract on lockdown. I mean, the day he gets sacked, he is going to have to. I mean, U.S. soccer is. I mean, not to say that they don't have money. But, but they're going to have to you know, pay him a good chunk of change to be able to step away. And on top of that, they're going to have to pay another salary on, in addition to that. Um, they have way too many responsibilities because they're also sacking not just a coach, but also a technical director. So you do have a, a guy that's playing two hats, two different, uh, he has two different hats. And at the same time, uh, you know, he's sometimes his best, he's his best and his worst critic. And, and sometimes when he looks at himself in the mirror, hey, you know, who's, who's the best coach of all? You are, Jorgen. You are. And he really doesn't have that self-criticism that many would think he has because at times when things are well, it's because of him doing a great job coaching. But when things aren't going so well, it's because of the players not being committed. I mean, it's kind of a Duga syndrome that you see with him as well because he questions commitment. He questions players who are going to MLS or going from Europe to MLS, you know, commitment as far as their, their progress. And to be honest with you, Football's a business, and if they want to go wherever they want, that's up to them. You know, if they want to go back to MLS, that's their prerogative. But, you know, those are the players that you have. It's, it's, it's not like the U.S. has a great deep pool of players with a great deal of talent. You have a lot of players with similar capabilities, but very limited um, extras as far as intangibles are concerned. So, I mean, yeah, they, they can come out, but at the same time, just as... It, one thing that really helps him is that underdog card. I mean, that, that really kind of gives him that little bit of extra push. But I wouldn't be surprised if they get knocked out out of the group stage. And to me, if they do, I mean, fine. You know, it, it's supposed to happen. And I think the media is kind of like bracing for that. But at the same time, do not be surprised if they advance to the next stage. Because th that's a team that has the capability to grind things out, to really make things as uncomfortable as possible and they try and hang in there for as long as they possibly can and they have a break or two go their way and they can get a victory now from that happen from that being executed to that happening there's still quite a bit of distance well certainly brad guzan has to has to play extremely well for that to happen and john john brooks too i mean you have to have and a second defense brooks. play well 
and Michael Bradley play well. You have to have a lot of players playing well for the U.S. to do. You don't have a player that, that can offer a great deal of individuality to say, you know what, they're going to tear it up. You know, you don't have a player on the U.S., you don't have a Landon Donovan anymore that he can go and say, you know what, I can carry this team on my back for stretches and be able to lift them up to the next level. The other, uh, the other intriguing group matchups uh, to me is, you know, who wins Group D, whether it's Argentina or Chile. I suppose that, that really depends on their head-to-head matchup. Um, and Group C, whether it's Uruguay or, or Mexico. And once again, that, you know, that yeah, depends. Go ahead. No, I think that Mexico-Uruguay match is going to depend on Luis Suarez's status, you know. How will you well, he, right now, yeah, right now they're saying that he that he's probably not going to be until quarters. The quarters, right. and there you go. So, so I mean, so I mean, I mean, you might see uh, a repeat performance of what happened in Copa America, where they were just struggling to stay alive and, and kind of grind their way to, to the next round. Or at the same time, I mean, I'm saying this, and Luis Suarez was also absent when Uruguay beat Colombia three 0 at the Estadio Centenario. So I mean, it depends on how everyone gets to that stage. And to me, the big wild card in that particular um, in that particular group is going to be Jamaica. Who you know, who is Jamaica going to be able to take points away from? And that's going to be the difference between you know one team advancing or one team not. It's who Jamaica takes points away from in, in that particular group. Absolutely. Do you think Jamaica is capable of taking points away from either of those sides? Yes, they are. 100%. Yes, they are. They are. I mean, I'm not saying they're going to win. I'm just saying take points. I mean, Winnie Schaefer, Winnie Schaefer, yeah, I mean, Winnie Schaefer's done a tremendous bit of work over in Jamaica. I mean, he's really gotten a group of tremendous athletes. I mean, if, if you know, some of these guys, if, if, if they weren't eligible to, to run for the 4x100 or 4x200s in Rio, I mean, these guys are pretty darn close to being able to do so. I mean, they have a good skill set. Maybe that first touch is still lacking in Jamaican football as well as the finishing, but Winnie Schaefer's been able to grab all the positive attributes and consolidate them into a very smooth-running team. I'm sorry to use a pun there, but um, it, it's, it's very, you know, you see a very cohesive group, a very embattled group that can really cause some problems for Jamaica. And you saw when they played in the Gold Cup last year against Mexico, they, pretty, they put up a good fight. Obviously, Mexico w- would end up winning 3-1 in the final, Without any help from the referees that time, but still, nonetheless, it's still a, a very, a very competitive side. That depending on how they do in this tournament, that's the fate of the others in, in the group as well. And also to go back to that statement, you look at how Jamaica have been doing in the Copa America. You know, being finalists, having defeated the United States, the host, and uh, why they did while they did do poorly against Mexico in the final. They still had a fantastic performance, especially coming off of Copa America, where nothing was expected of them. You would have thought that they would have been trashed by Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay. They ended up only losing 1-0 in all three of those matches. So you have to give credit and credit is due to the Jamaicans. Oh, oh yeah, I mean, because in Chile last year, I mean, the running joke from, from many of the, of the journalists in Argentina and Uruguay, oh, well, I guess Usain Bolt's not playing today. I mean, and, and that's that. You know, I'd be talking to him, and hey, what's the lineup? Oh, well, you saying both not playing for Jamaica, and, and obviously, you know, my Jamaican counterparts in the studio weren't too happy about that. But I mean, they understood, and 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 they saw the the progress from each match, despite them losing one 0 You saw that there was a great deal of progress, and what helped them is that they had only two weeks to get ready for Gold Cup, and they just slid in and, and started doing a good job there. So, I mean, it's a team that, that really comes in with a good deal of momentum, maybe not so much from World Cup qualifiers, but still, they do have an idea of what they have to play. They have an, an identity already instilled by Winnie Schaefer. And, of course, you know, having a coach that's already been experienced at the World Cup level, that really helps a great deal. All right. So, Roberto, mm-hmm. uh, give us one thing to watch out for in the Copa Centenario that uh, we may not be thinking about? Well, uh, the diversity of fans, the fact that this country has represented the meaning of a melting pot. I feel that despite the ticket prices have been a bit controversial, you know, cheapest prices going around $60, $50 on Ticketmaster, you're still going to see 
a bunch of fans, something that has been seen like in the 94 World Cup, because in the United States, you see so many different cultures of the countries participating, uh, Colombian Americans, uh, Brazilian Americans, Argentine Americans, Costa Ricans, Ecuadorians, I can go on, Mexicans, obviously, the leading factor. It, it's going to be a lot of fans coming out to support their own nations, and I think that that's all that has to matter for such a tournament like this, the fact that the fans can at least come and try to influence maybe a part of the game, if not all of them, and see all the different types of diversity that uh, this country has to offer, and why it is a spectacular tournament, despite all the controversy that has been made. I hope that it is a spectacular tournament where we see the top stars in, in a tournament that celebrate in, on a day or on a month in which we celebrate the centenary of the, uh, the starting process that ended up becoming the first World Cup in 1930. You know, the Copa America was the major influence for the, uh, the World Cup. And so to celebrate 100 years in the United States, which seemed a bit controversial at the start, I think that the optimism and expectations, and I feel that Tim and Juan agree with me on this, it's just going to be intense because of the amount of diversity that you're going to see in this country, as well as the many of um, star players that will be um, on the pitches in the United States. And uh, Juan, what's, what's one thing to watch out for that people may not be thinking of? I mean, one thing that we've been talking about, I mean, we've, we've had more uh, discussion on whether this tournament should be played, whether this tournament should not be played, uh, you know, all the other types of, of uh, you know, controversies that have been surrounding this tournament, uh, everything else. At the end of the day, what's going to help us enamor ourselves with the game again is what happens on the pitch. I mean, I'm just hoping that we see a tremendous product on the field. That, that, that's what I want to see at the end of the day. I want to be enamored again by football. I mean, it, it's been a very tough year for football fans um, individually and collectively, and I think this is the opportunity for many to, to be enamored again with what's going on and, and being able to, to want to see the headlines be, you know, so-and-so scored, you know, a hat trick. So-and-so did so great. Oh, this team is doing phenomenal. Not what's going on outside you know, the extracurricular stuff. I mean, hearing, you know, Sergio Haldue and, and the money that he was able to, to finagle in order just to get, uh, you know, a, a private jet to go and fly to Brazil back and forth on a consistent basis or, or the other types of news that have emerged in the past year and change. I mean, we're coming close to the one-year anniversary of FIFA Gate. And, you know, I want to hear something different. I want to hear, you know, see great football and, and enjoy and have a laugh and be able to, to go and sit with people and say, man, what a game we just saw. That's, that's really what I want people to, to enjoy, and I want people to fall in love. Um, and, and, and I just, I, you know, both fans of football and even potential new fans of football here in the United States to see this and say, man, you know what, I got to follow this because this really kicks ass, and I, I really want to be a part of it. So, it's I mean, that's what I'm really looking for. Especially yeah. for us Americans. Uh, yeah, for Americans, I mean, you know, it's, it's for, for us Latinos to be able to, to tell Americans, hey, this game's for real. This is the real deal. And, and keep the momentum growing and make this sport really special. It has the potential to do here. In the that it's not a Heineken commercial? <laughs> well, it depends who you're hanging out with. I mean, if, if it's some of the females that are there, I don't mind it. But, but you know what? I mean, you know, if it's some of the dudes, forget it. No, no, no I don't want any of those. You know, if it's the girls from a Heineken commercial, bring them on. I don't care. Oh, yeah. All right, Tim, I'll give, uh, I'll give you the last word. I think one of the things that intrigues me is where we're heading with this. Um, when, I, when I talk about this, I'm talking about cooperation between Commonwealth and Commonwealth. Because I think there is scope, I think there is a desire on both sides for more cooperation while retaining their separate identities. I think there is, there is, a, is a desire for more cooperation. And I think this could be especially interesting in the future at club level. Uh, and we've, we've talked earlier on, I think a, a couple of people mentioned the, the MLS, for all of its progress, it still has a little bit of a, of a credibility problem. <laughs> the, 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 the South American club football has all, it has the tradition, it doesn't have a credibility problem, but it's lagging, it doesn't have the momentum that the MLS has been building up. Uh, and uh, so you can see a natural fit. You can see what both sides have to gain from each other. Now, how this proceeds uh, is 
going to be very interesting because I think it will proceed. And there are some worrying things here. And if you were one of the minor countries in CONCACAF, you'd be worried about this because you'd see yourself being being carved out. Um, that, that would be a risk. Another risk is just in terms of, of, say, a club competition involving teams from both hemispheres and the amount of travelling time for a club competition. It would be, I think, it, it would be a real um, burden on the players. But a tournament... Like this, like this happening for, for, the, for the, the, the Copa Centenario, a tournament for the best clubs in CONCACAF with your Champions League and the best clubs from the Copa Libertadores, I think that could really have legs. And uh, so I'm sure that this competition that we're going to see next month in, in the United States is a move towards greater cooperation. And that's something which intrigues me. Very good. Well... This is Jim Hart for These Football Times signing off uh, with uh, a big special thanks to Tim Vickery, Juan Arango, and Roberto Rojas. Until next time, be the change you want to see in the world. Thanks for listening, and uh, good night. That was great, guys. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.